to another episode of Sacred Cinema here on 2XX98.3 FM, people-powered radio. I'm your host, Jimmy Bernasconi, for the next half hour, and this week's episode is entitled Fictitious Figures. Figures. I suppose we've orbited around this idea a few times, the idea of creating a sense of self or a sense of otherness. Or I mean, We've talked about phantasmic figures before, uh, and every week we kind of talk about different ways in which we can look at films where we have multiple characters in one film and they're kind of representative, perhaps, of a singular person, different aspects of the, that person. And um, I think that's certainly an, an idea that's very much embodied in this week's episode where we're talking about characters who are either impersonating other characters or they're inventing other characters. Mostly this film, this week's episode is about where the protagonist kind of makes up a fake person or or makes up someone that um, either doesn't doesn't really exist or, the, or they become someone that doesn't actually exist or they become someone that they are, they're not actually that person. The idea of cre- you know creating a fictitious figure, making up a figure and either embodying themselves or, or they're existing in a sort of imaginary realm, let's say. And so I, I think... We, we can look at it through that lens that we always look at in the show about, you know, what is it to create the persona? What is it to sort of create the mask? We've, we've talked about that a lot. I really want to hone in specifically this week on the, um, this kind of deeper exploration of fiction as a human activity. Like, why is it that we make up stories that aren't real, make up people that aren't real to tell us about the real uh, the, the real world, I should say, not the real in terms of like the Lacanian sense, which we've got ourselves into some trouble. We're actually going to mention Lacan this week, but uh, recently we did an episode on, we used the phrase the real, but not in the Lacanian sense, and got ourselves into a bit of trouble there. But what are the films we're going to talk about this week? We're going to start off with Meet John Doe from... 1941, directed by Frank Capra. Uh, we're then going to move on to Anthony Minghella's 1999 film, The Talented Mr. Ripley, uh, which I believe was based on the book Ripley's Believe It or Not. And then we're going to finish off with American Fiction, a new film by Cord Jefferson, starring Jeffrey Wright. But let's kick things off now because it's quite a chunky episode. Let's kick things off now with Frank Capra's 1941 classic, Meet John Doe. So this one stars Barbara Standwick, and she's a journalist working at this newspaper that's about to get a, a big, uh, you know, the, everyone's going to get the shuffle. They're going to try and they need to get a big story going. And in order to save her job, she comes up with this fake character, John Doe, who is kind of this every man who stands up for the little guy type figure, and he kind of goes he kind of goes viral in the uh, 1941 sense in that this newspaper story. Um, uh, Everybody sort of gets around it, and Gary Cooper um, plays. They have to hire a real guy. He's sort of down and out bum kind of guy uh, that Gary Cooper plays. Who is also called John. Uh, his name is John Willoughby, but he stands in as this fake character, John Doe. And then the whole film is about you know making the public feel like this is a real guy, and that what he says is true. And then all of these John Doe clubs begin, and he becomes a real hero of society all across America. And, uh, you know, they have to deal with, you know, the, the ethical and pragmatic dilemmas of him not actually being a real person. And so I want to look at this film sort of through the lens of it being kind of like an allegory for the human act. We talked about how I want to sort of look in this week about the sort of the human act of, of creating fiction. Why do we do it and what, how does it work? I want to talk about the, this film specifically as an allegory for 
or, or it's quite symbolic of how symbolic of the process of um, of the human act of hero creation, and I mean it in all forms. I think we could apply this to the, you know why we create superheroes or why we consider real life people as heroes and give them a sort of a heroic persona. I think this film is a really good sort of stencil or or model for for how humans are created and why we do it and what the effect of that is. So. I guess the film kind of, I think the film kind of answers an interesting question about like, what are the attributes of the ideal man? Like, what are the attributes of a hero? You have all the vanilla things. And that's certainly something that is explored in the film where, you know, it just needs to be sort of like a compassionate and societally conscientious person, you know, someone who cares about their community, someone who sticks up for the little guy. But one of the major aspects of this film is that it's such an important thing to the public that this John Doe guy is actually a real person. And if we think about heroes throughout history and in our culture, it is interesting to see the different ways that we view a fictitious figure or a figure, I should say, as to in, in terms of, you know, it, it depends on whether they're fictitious or factual in terms of how we view them. So if you think about something like 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 a fictitious hero, like like an archetypal hero, um, they're potent on their own, even if they're not real. So if you think about like a little kid when they watch, I don't know if you've seen that video on Instagram, for example, of that little kid watching Spider-Man for the first time and his big brother or sister or someone is filming him and you can see his eyes opening and it's kind of that very relatable moment. Like the first time you ever watched Spider-Man or the first time as a little guy you watched a, a superhero movie and how much that moved you and how, how potent that was, even though you know it's on a, a television screen. And you, you can even see that in the fact that the film and, and, and the story story um, of John Doe in the film, I mean, he's called John Doe. He's quite vanilla. Um, and they even explicitly say in the dialogue that all of these things he says are pretty just typical motherhood statements about, you know, look after your neighbor. Um, and, and it's almost funny. It's almost it's almost like, like a meme almost. like And, and you can see this in t- today's, on social media where you see, you know, pretty vanilla statements go viral as quotes just because they have a nice sort of ring to them and then they speak some truth to us even in all their simplicity you don't really need to be that much of a hero you don't need to be that original idea in order to be so potent um even just a fictitious sort of made up vanilla character can appeal to us um but the ideal is still going to be limited if it is fictitious. And it's almost like in the film, all of the characters, they really want John Doe to be real, but they're so sensitive. They're almost kind of insecure. They have this insecurity uh, about whether he's actually real or not. And if the characters that do find out he's not real, it's a big deal for them to find out that he's not real. It, it almost lifts up this idea. It's like a very recognisable idea, but it's kind of hard to articulate. It's even it's it's it's, it's almost like it, it's like we accept that we are by default vulnerable to the ex, to, to being exploited by like a false prophet or a false hero. Like we've got we've got this weird or the characters have this relatable weird tendency that they're happy to sort of throw out the baby with the bathwater, even if they can't spot the bad thing in the ideal, um, they're not just going to fake it. They're not going to pretend that that person is good if they know that, you know, that they, they won't tolerate an actor. Um, even if all of the ideals that this John Doe guy um, embodies are ideals that they can get around, if they know he's not a real person, even if there are no fictitious bad ideals, they don't like the fact that he is being um, this character is being manifested in a fake. It's being manifested in a person that's just a stand-in, so to speak. It's like we're, we're happy to have actors play heroes, um, but the fact that that hero is not a real person or that actor doesn't actually embody that character in real life kind of inhibits them a little bit. And we, 
we're a little bit scared of being exploited by that. We're, we're scared of being exploited by someone who claims to be something that they're not, even if everything they in that in that actual world, even that they, if they are embodying. And we do see in this film that once the sort of actor does embody the true character, that they can win people back on side type thing. And so this element of being authentic, this element of of actually being the person you claim to be, or or the element of of a even even if you, you know even if there's a good chance that the the figure could be fictitious, if they might be real, uh, if they could be real, if there's a chance that they're real. That packs even more of a punch. And if we think about it in the context of something like religion, um, it, it makes sense why so many religions claim that their their figures that they worship, their prophets. Um, they're heroes, so to speak. It's important. They have to prove that they're real. It's not enough that the Bible itself or the Quran or whatever is a good story that we can use to base our lives off, right? It, it, it also needs to be a real guy. And it, it doesn't matter if we're, but, you know, it, it, it actually does matter that the person that, 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 that is giving us a good, you know, it, that exemplifies the ideal person. It does matter if that person was real or not. Um, if it came out tomorrow that any of those religious texts weren't real, they would lose a bit of their spice. We like to see this actually embodied in a real person, even if all the ideals, even if everything about that person is good and we can't find anything bad in them. We, we, we're not going to worship them as much if we know it's not. It's almost like if we know it's not realistic, we won't um, pursue it, even if all the ideals themselves um, are perfectly valid and things that we want to strive toward. So a film like this does sort of seem to depict the creation of an ideal as this endeavor of it's it's like a monumental creation um, of societal progress, right? It's the construction of this ideal figure um, that, that 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 we can't resist but want to follow, and we almost get a little bit concerned if they're not real because because it's so it's so palpable, it's so potent. Um, the construction of these heroes is something that uh, we're, we're certainly attuned to. It's something that we will very much um, will definitely follow if it can be proven to be a good idea or that person can be proven to be um, bona fide. But is the construction of an ideal figure ever destructive, right? You know, not, not, we obviously know that you can make up a line that's a bad thing, but what if we construct an idea of who we want to be or who we want society to value? Can that ever be constructive in any sense? And, and who sort of fronts the cost for the destruction of that? Well, let's move on now to our next film. Before we do, just remind you, you are listening to Sacred Cinema here on 2XX98.3 FM, People Powered Radio. I'm your host, Jimmy Bernasconi, here on the People Powered Radio station. Be sure to stay tuned for more quality radio programming here on 2XX. But also be sure to jump on our website if you'd like to sponsor the show or subscribe to the station. All of that would be very much appreciated. You'd be a hero in my eyes, and a factual one uh, in, in that case. But moving on now to our second film, um, A Talented Mr. Ripley, directed by Anthony Minghella from 1999. And in this one, you've got Matt Damon is our protagonist. And he plays Mr. Ripley, Mr. Tom Ripley. And he catches wind of this bloke, Dickie Greenleaf, who's living out there in the Mediterranean, out in Italy, who's played by Jude Law. And he's a rich boy, and his father says, look, if you can bring him back to America, I'll give you $1,000. Matt Damon goes out there, falls madly in love with, well, not just Dickie himself, but his lifestyle, everything about him. He's a very charismatic guy. You know, this is 1999, Jude Law, we're talking about. It's a very famous movie. I'm sure you have seen the film. Um, and as per usual, we can we can sort of, as a sort of hint at the beginning of the film, we can look at this film in sort of the typical way. Um, sort of, we can psychoanalyze this film and sort of talk about how it's about Tom seeing his ideal self in Dickie and kind of seeing them literally as the same person. 
um, which has a which is what happens metaphorically. But we can we can sort of say that you know it doesn't happen literally, but in the film, um, if you I don't want to give it too many spoilers, but Matt Damon does kind of become Dickie Greenleaf in the film, hence why he's the talented Mr. Ripley because he's able to sort of shape shift a lot in this film. I mean, from the get-go, he makes up a fictitious figure, the person he claims to be, this Tom Ripley guy. Uh, and I did go back and re-watch from the beginning. He does say his name is Tom Ripley before he finds out what um, he need, what his mission is. Um, but there is a sort of way to w- watch this film that we don't actually know who Matt Damon is to begin with. Like we, we don't even know if his name actually is Tom Ripley to begin with. Um, and so we can look at this film as... In as I mentioned before, in like a Lacanian sense, it's like an exploration of the ego and how the ego is kind of like an object that that generates or that we create this object of the ego. The ego isn't subjective, it's a thing that we create from an external image, right? It's something that sort of sits outside of us. We sort of see it in a mirror image, so to speak, and we identify with this object. We identify with the image of the ego. So Tom sees Dickie. He sort of envisioned that to be the person that he wants to be, his ideal ego, and then he goes on to embody that literally in the film, which is metaphorical of how we embody the ego, which is an object that we observe. And, and it's interesting how in the sort of like Lacanian sense, this image is not simply like a a literal reflection of the true us um, because there kind of is no true us, right? Speaking of the real, you know, that's something that's ineffable. It's not something that we can actually manifest or say out loud. And it's it's more that we encompass these, the, or we imagine these images and and we identify um, the images that, that sort of are in our imaginary vocabulary to make this this ego. And it's very much informed by society at large and 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 this sort of leads us to a bigger point which is a bit more of an original point that i want to make because i think all this stuff is about the ego and embodying the ego and embodying the ideal or something that's kind of been spoken about with this film before we don't need to get get into too much i I kind of want to talk about the real world implications of this and how it kind of we can sort of see this in the real world very much at this time so but before we do that i just want to sort of flesh out another plot point of this film so there's this kind of ironic tragedy in the film where through his idolatry through matt damon's idolizing of um jude law's character he he almost has this macbeth-esque kind of aspect to him where this this constant creation of of new faces or this this continuous um yearning to be to be dickie greenleaf and to keep this fantasy going it leads to like an inevitable destruction um for all of those who actually know the truth and who are sort of catching up on him and figuring out who his real self is and ultimately it's his sense of self is not only his sense of integrity but but a core sense of tom ripley um, and I guess that's why the film is kind of called the talented Mr. Ripley. It's like Mr. It's kind of like this, there's this element of anonymity. Like he's this shape-shifting guy. He doesn't really have a core self. And so this constant creation of, of a new self, this constant yearning for a new self and, and to become a better self and to become the more luxurious, and the more handsome self ultimately leads to a kind of tragic destruction of the actual self, a, a core sense of self, which is still consistent with that Lacanian idea of, the ego being an object and, and and the self actually not really existing or at least it being ineffable. And so we can see it. There's this story about the hunger for a new self, not only at the expense of the old self, because in the sense you kind of want to see the expense of his old self, because it's kind of a nothing, but as I mentioned before, at the expense of his self and also tragically the, at the expense of his peers and any future peers. And he kind of dooms himself to be alone in this constant yearning for a new self. There's never going to be anyone that he can spend the rest of his life with, so to speak, because he's never going to have a singular 
life in a sense. He, he is never going to have a life, so to speak, because he will never continue as a constant thing. And there's a very salt burning aspect to this film, obviously. Like salt burn in the bath scene is obviously um, a very much a reference to this, and you can see. Um, and, I, and I actually, because I, I, I'd never, I had never seen this film before. Um, I only watched this recently, and um, I appreciated salt burn a lot more actually after watching this. Even though it's seemingly derivative, but I think it is saying a new thing about this idea. It's uh, I think Solbo's adding sort of an economic, uh, more of an unobvious economic, but uh, I've already talked about Solbo on the show, so we don't need to talk about it too much. And obviously those homoerotic undertones that we talked about on the show, we talked about Soulbone and the idea of, of literally embodying and literally consuming the ideal and that sort of thing. But let me make my main point here. You can ignore everything I've just said. The deeper point I want to make here is that I think that when we watch the town through Mr. Ripley in 2024. I think that it's really a story or it's better. It better serves us as a story about the plight of the 21st um, century growth or grind hunter, if that makes sense. I know this film was made in 1999, set in 1958. Um, so it's not even set nor is it made in the 21st century, but let me, let me make like kind of like a, like a, just like an off, off the ball point that, that, the, the, at the time, right, I remember growing up during this time, Matt Damon, Jude Law, Leonardo DiCaprio, Mark Warburg were all the same guy, right? There's, there's interviews, and I've said this before when we talked about The Departed, which has similar themes. Um, and, and three of those guys I just mentioned are in The Departed, which is a film about imposters and, and pretending to be someone else who you're not and, and rats and that sort of thing. And there's, there's even interviews where Leonardo DiCaprio talks about how he often gets mistaken for Matt Damon and Brad Pitt, I think, says the same thing. And, you know, when these guys coming were coming out, like Matt Damon and Mark Wahlberg were like the same guy, like one's doing the Bourne Supremacy and one's doing some other action hero who's a fugitive or something like that. And then literally in this movie, we have Matt Damon and Jude Law and there's, there's you know, the imagery of, of, of photographs being rubbed out and, and looking the same and doing impressions and kind of being the same. And I don't think that's just a coincidence. And I know you could say this happens sort of in every epoch. This happens, you know, there's always lookalikes, you know, Jake Gyllenhaal looks like Tobey Maguire and that sort of thing. But the fact that it's so obviously dealt with in this film, in The Departed, in interviews and just organically during this time and, and continues to this day to an extent, but not so much. I think in 1999, it's not a coincidence. I, I think it's more a really good example of art imitating life really closely because it's very much the story of a post-Cold War globalized society. And I'm going to bring it back to the movie in a second, but let me make this broad theoretical point now. That in a global culture, which we, we never had before 1991, right? There was no such thing as like a homogenized, globalized, international community and international culture, like a, like a McDonald'sization a Coca-Cola, Coca-Colaization of the of of the global cultural identity. What you have to accept there is, if we have a sense of universal globalization, you have cultural ideas that become universal. So it's not simply that you know. Um, uh, a good bowl of pasta is an ideal or, 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 an, or a nice thing in Italy or, or a well-made hamburger is a, is a good thing just in the, the southern part of America. It becomes that those things are globally and universally valued. We get something like a, we get something like a global or universal 
um, valuable ideal. And, and I guess this kind of happened at the end of the Second World War with things like the UN Charter of Human Rights, which is something that no one would have imagined 100 years prior. The more the world globalizes, the more the culture itself globalizes, which is somewhat repetitious, but it, it's, it's important to, to isolate to culture and cultural ideas and cultural values. And so there's an implication here, which I think is well matched and well mirrored in the film, which is that that people begin to have this yearning to be not just become an ideal, not to just become a cultural ideal, but to become a universal ideal. And what that does is it, it sort of inevitably means the destruction of, of all else, of what came before it, what else you could have been, and everyone that's not going to be that thing. So I'm, I'm not talking about this in terms of it just being a societal phenomenon. Let's go back to the film here. It, this is very well embodied, I think, in the story of the film, where you have this, this irony where what we're looking at is a very, very archetypally beautiful setting, right? The southern coast, the Mediterranean coast of Italy is something that you can't peel your eyes away from. And every shot of this film is gorgeous. And every time they drink a coffee or smoke a cigarette or Jude Law puts on a new shirt, you go, you go like, oh man, I've got to add that to my wardrobe. Look at these really cool guys. This is so great. But it's riddled with disgust, disgustingly greedy and selfish and devious and untrustworthy people, right, who we still find remarkably attractive and charismatic. And you can't walk away from this film not wanting to be a little bit like all of them, not wanting to wear one of the dresses that Gwyneth Paltrow wears or wear some of the sunglasses or, or drive the boat that Jude Law drives. And so what happens is we have this this, this massive yearning to, to, to sort of um, hit the peak of this, this pyramid of, of, of cultural ideals, but it's at the complete destruction of integrity. It's at, the it's at the cost of more fundamental traditional ideals around what it means to be a good person, all those things that John Doe stood for, right, that people were able to get around. The more that we create a kind of cultural, universally cultural ideal, the more that we're going to sacrifice those things that are more fundamental to specific cultures, but but also all of the things that are required to, to be spent in order to get to that top point, right? To to be sort of, not to make an Italian reference here, but to be Machiavellian is to reach the top at the cost of, you know, integrity and, and the things that we consider to be traditionally good things to be. So if, if we can sort of compare John Doe and, and um, Tantra Miss Ripley again here, on one hand, we, we see that there's an immense potential for societal progress in the creation of an ideal figure, in the creation of a hero. Um, but we almost need to accept that this is going to guarantee the destruction of so much in, a, in the process, right? It's going to be the construction of the self. And think, think about a movie like American Psycho is a lot like this as well. This constant obsession with becoming, you know, the top of the heap uh, in, in a universal sense, it just hollows you out on the inside in terms of what you actually are in, in terms of a genuine and substantive, in a genuine and substantive sense, or at least that's what the, the film sort of suggests. So we're destructing the sense of self, genuine relationships with other people, and traditional senses of what is the good. We've talked about this on the show before where I kind of love this this contrast here because we see the sort of the mishmash or the, the internal contradiction of traditional ideas of left and right wing politics. So like in, in John Doe, like in that first notion of, of, you know, the immense potential of societal progress through the creation of new ideals and new ideas, we look at a film like John Doe that's got sort of the glaze or the shell of a, you know, a 1941 traditional American value 
um, piece of, of, of propaganda in a sense, like he's a good guy, good American man. But it's all about the creation of a new ideal, something that can be, uh, it's almost got a utopian edge to it, to, you know, to, 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 to go after the, the ideal. Um, but then in the second sense, we, we've got this critique of, you know, we've got luxurious or greedy got a kind of capitalistic lifestyle but it's almost from a conservative viewpoint where what is the cost of that is you know traditional ideals around being a good person all those all those sort of con- conservative ideas so so it's it's almost like that the critique of capitalism is also a um, a promotion of old school traditional conservative ideals which is something I think we actually are seeing a lot more in the culture all of a sudden but let's finish things off now with American fiction new film by Cord Jefferson and in brief Jeffrey Wright plays a character named Monk which is very significant for for reasons I'm going to say in a moment and he's a writer he's he's an African-American writer that kind of writes things that he wants to write but he has to make up this fake um, persona author persona a pseudonym um, to sell these kind of what he considers sort of lowbrow street fiction kind of um, books about the African-American experience. And I think one of the aspects of this film that I really appreciate, and I think ties in well with what we're talking about this week is how we kind of have a propensity to forget. And obviously there's a, there's a huge sort of racial element to this film that I'm actually going to sort of park to the side and use it more as a means to tell a broader point here. So I appreciate that it is very much a film about African-American um, the African-American experience and that sort of thing. We're going to sort of use it as a means to sort of tell a broader point here. But I think this film kind of tells us a story about our propensity to forget heroes, like to forget that they actually existed once upon a time. And maybe there isn't that strong a need to make new ones, but rather to remember what we have and what we've had. So part of his plight, I think, is that he, there is sort of this insistence on this certain character that actually ends up, that's sort of border on a stereotype. Like there's this insistence that he should be writing these, you know, modern um, African-American characters that, you know, uh, live on the street. And he, he doesn't like that because he feels like it is stereotyping. It's limiting his people to a certain, like, specific stereotype. Um, he does learn that there's, a, there's an importance to that, but th- there's still a frustration there because I think in his experience... And I mean that in terms of his experience of being himself, he realized that there are actual genuine heroes sitting right there that we can be celebrating and promoting and and putting out in the world rather than constantly focusing on a sort of a stereotypical um, victim, so to speak, or victim of society. We can we can say, no, we have these great ideals that we're just parking to the side and not yearning to to embody. And 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 he is that sort of person, and the characters he writes are presumably those kinds of people. But also, I think. One of the aspects I like about this film, and it's not just because I'm a jazz fan, but there's a there's an element of the film where the film's almost subtly talking about, and also I should say his his family as well are all doctors and and highly competent people as well. So the film actually also in and of itself has a lot of characters that we can see to be, um, you know, virtuous or, or worth making heroes out of. Let's say. Um, and the and the other the other writer character, the Golden, she's also a good example of that. But also, it, the film also gives us a reference to heroes of the past that have kind of been, you know, um, hidden under the sand. So his name is literally Thelonious Monk, and if you're not aware of Thelonious Monk, he's one of the greatest jazz pianists of all time. And at the end of the film, I'm not going to watch what happens at the end of the film, but there's another clear reference to another jazz great. And I think it's a really interesting coincidence here it's obviously unintended but it's almost like the perfect response to how jazz is conveyed in in the talented mr ripley where it's this art form that's been co-opted by spoiled white boys 
Uh, and in its co-optation, in its appropriation, the heroes or the prophets of jazz are forgotten, right? They're lost. And these once inspirational cultural ideas and idols sadly need to be rewritten from scratch uh, because they have been lost through over-obsession in the past. So perhaps our mission today, like in accepting that we have this yearning to create profound heroes, but that when we do that, there is a destructive element to it as well. We're, we're tossing away other, maybe we're potentially tossing away other ideas of the past, or maybe we're searching too hard, yearning too hard um, for, 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 for ideals and idols that are too universal, that are too monumental, too monolithic. Perhaps our mission today in 2024 shouldn't just be obsess. It shouldn't just, shouldn't not just be to obsess over the creation of new and, and almost obnoxiously, obnoxiously progressive ideals and idols, but perhaps consider the wisdom of those who have been forgotten through outdated obsession. Perhaps our mission is not just to draft new fictions, but to rewrite old ones as well. Well, that's it for Sacred Cinema here on 2XX 98.3 FM, People Powered Radio. I'm your host, Jimmy Berners-Gone here on the People Powered Radio station. Be sure to stay tuned for more quality radio programming here on 2XX. And also consider jumping onto our website if you're not there already to consider. There's a lot of considering this week to consider subscribing to the station or sponsoring the show. And also get in touch with me. You can email me at contact at jimmyberners We'll see you next week. Cheers. Thank you.